Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Lent, we are doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus, where we examine various parables that Jesus taught during his ministry. The goal of this series is to examine the messages from these parables and how they are asking us to change internally through our spirituality and externally through our behaviors. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the season of Lent, we have been doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus. A parable is a short story that is told with the explicit purpose of illustrating a moral or spiritual lesson. When a parable is told well, it can convey deep truth and meaning to the hearer. Jesus told parables all the time during his ministry, and so during this sermon series, we're going to be looking at various parables that he told. We're going to dive into them, try to extract their meaning, and try to determine how Jesus is expecting us to live the message he's sending us through this parable, both internally, spiritually, and externally through our actions. Last week, you heard T.C., talk about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. This week, I'm going to be talking about two parables that have a very similar message, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. To begin today, though, before we get into the particulars of each of these parables, I actually want to take a step back and talk about the circumstances that prompted Jesus to tell this parable in the first place. So, Jesus, as it says in the text, he's been teaching, he's been going around, and larger and larger crowds have been gathering to go listen to him. And among these crowds, there are some people who have bad reputations who are starting to get into the mix, people who would be considered social pariahs. Now, the text names two groups of people, sinners and tax collectors. I want to explain to you what each of these is. Let's start with the tax collector. I've talked a lot about tax collectors in the past, but let me just give you a brief summary of why they were so despised 
by the people of that day and time. So if you were a tax collector, you were not paid a salary. And so the way that you made your money was by inflating the tax rate that was owed to the government. So if you owed $100, then the tax collector would say you owe 110. He'd skim 10 off the top for himself. And in this way, he was stealing from the people around him. So it's understandable why people disliked tax collectors so much. They were thought to be very dishonest. Sinners, on the other hand, this is a little bit more complicated because we don't entirely know what that means. Likely, it refers to women who are in the occupation of prostitution, but it could also refer to somebody who is ethnically Jewish, but who decides that they don't want to follow the laws of the Torah, like eating kosher. And if you were an observant Jew, and you came across somebody who was ethnically Jewish, and they decided they didn't want to do that, you would often label them to be a sinner. So these two people, they or these types of people are showing up and listening to Jesus speak. They're becoming more common in the crowds. And there's a group of Jews who noticed this. This group of Jews was called the Pharisees. Now I want to take a moment to talk to you about who the Pharisees are because they play a big role in the parables that Jesus tell. So the Pharisees get a bad rap in the New Testament because they're kind of pitted against Jesus. They're kind of seen as his adversary, his enemy, which actually historically likely was not true. The Pharisees were unique because of the way they approached the laws of the Old Testament. They took their religion very seriously, and so as a result, they wanted to make sure they were following those laws precisely. So one of the ways that they did this was by ensuring that they weren't going to break the laws. So let's take a law in the Old Testament say the Sabbath. There is a law that says on the Sabbath you shall rest and do no work. Now, this particular commandment, the Pharisees would look at it and they would say, okay, it doesn't define what work is, so we're going to create another rule around that, what is known as a gazira. And the gazira is like a fence that you put around the law. And they would say, so for instance, on the Sabbath, if you need to go get water out of a well, you can take 40 steps to get to your well, but any more than 40 steps is considered to be work. So the idea is, if you observe the gazira, if you stay outside of the fence, then you're not likely going to be breaking the actual law that's in the Torah. Now, I want to just emphasize, the Pharisees, they were not bad people. These are people who were revered by those around them. The Pharisees, it was a voluntary organization, very similar to what you see among monks and nuns in the Catholic Church, except Pharisees could get married. So they would have been looked at in that same light. And so in the same way that if I was preaching and a monk or a nun came and visited me to listen to my preaching, it would be an honor. It was an honor for Jesus to have Pharisees in his crowd listening to him. The only problem is that these Pharisees, they seem to be passing judgment on those undesirables in the crowd. They're passing judgment on the sinners and the tax collectors. And specifically, they don't like the fact that Jesus is associating with these people. Now, the text doesn't tell us why they're so judgmental of these people and Jesus's association with them, but it likely has something to do with their mentality. 
And this mentality is not unique to the Pharisees. It is something that you see across all religions. There are Christians who take their religion very seriously. And when they take their religion very seriously, they have very specific views and understandings of what it means to live your life in the right way. It's very black and white. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And so if you live your life according to the ways, the values, and beliefs that they hold dear, then you're good. But if you deviate from those values and beliefs, then very quickly you're going to be put in the not good category. Now the fact is, I can commiserate with this way of thinking. When I was younger, I can tell you that I was a very judgmental person. In fact, I would say I was one of the most judgmental person I knew at that time. So particularly when I was in high school and college, if you did not conform to my very strict moral standards, I looked down on you. And to give you a sense of what that was, I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs, I didn't smoke, I didn't even drink or even take in any kind of caffeine, no sexual intercourse, and I believe that you had to treat your body and your mind as a temple. And anybody who didn't do that, I would look down upon them. So as you can imagine, I was the total life of the party. People loved having me around. Now, I do have to give you a little bit of context for my attitude that I was dealing with at this time. So I grew up in Virginia, and the particular town that I grew up in in Virginia has a pretty intense drinking culture. And to give you a sense of just how intense it is, I just want to give you a little story to kind of illustrate this for you. So when I was going to get married, I was about to get married to Courtney back in July of 2003, we were getting married in California. And so what that meant was most of the people who I grew up with in Virginia weren't going to be able to come over to that. And so some neighbors in our town decided that they were going to invite everybody who we knew over so that we could spend time with them and they could congratulate us and, and say hello to us. And so it was kind of a way of having a wedding there, this little reception. And so they threw this big party and I invited some friends of mine from Oxford University. They happened to be in the States and so they came down. I thought this was the time for them to kind of celebrate my marriage. And so they come to this party and what's interesting is I had more than one of them come up to me and say, I have never seen the consumption of so much alcohol in my life. And I was in a sorority. Some of them were in fraternities. They were in drinking cultures when they were in school. Now, what's amazing about this is that there was nothing out of the ordinary about this particular party. This was just an average weekend in Virginia in my town. But that gives you some context for what I was dealing with because my reaction to the culture of the time was to go to the other extreme. They were extreme in one way, I was going to the other extreme. And when you're operating out of a place of extremes, then you do become very judgmental because it's very hard for you to understand where the other person is coming from because you're so far away. There's a disconnect. And because you're disconnected from them and you can't truly understand how they live their life, whether it's not drinking at all or whether it's drinking too much, then what happens is you end up in a place where you can't really communicate with each other and you just say, you know what, I'm done. Now that brings me back to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, they're in the crowd, they see these people, the sinners, the tax collectors, and they don't agree with the way that they're living their life. So they look at the woman in the crowd and they say, you know what, it's not right for a woman to sell her body for profit. 
They look at the Jews in the crowd who don't follow kosher law, and they say, look, it's not right for you to live your life without following the laws of God. They look at the tax collector, and they say, it's not right for you to take more money than you are owed just to pay yourself a salary. If this is the way you're going to choose to live your life, then we don't agree with it. And you have to realize, of course, the Pharisees, they're operating out of a pretty extreme place where they don't agree with what's happening. They don't like it. And so they're judging what's going on. So this judgment is what prompts Jesus to tell these two parables. And the first parable that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. And this is what Jesus says in that parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, I think it's important to point out that the premise of this parable is absolutely absurd. No shepherd in their right mind would leave 99 sheep unattended in the wilderness to go find the one sheep that they need to find that's lost. I mean, and you have to realize, Jesus doesn't say, oh, who of you, if you lost one sheep, would leave your 99 sheep with another shepherd? He doesn't say that. He just leaves them alone by themselves and goes off to find the other sheep. Now, I can tell you that predators would have a field day. If a pack of wolves came by and saw 99 sheep just milling about by themselves, I can tell you by the time that shepherd got back with the one lost sheep, he wouldn't have 99 anymore. But that's not the point of the parable, is it? The sheep and the shepherds, these are metaphors. So the shepherd, of course, represents God, and the sheep represent us. And the 99 sheep, Those are the ones who abide by God's expectations. They do what God expects of them. And this, of course, is a nod to the Pharisees who are in the crowd. The one lost sheep, however, that is referring to the undesirables, the sinners, the tax collectors. And he uses this as a way to pit these two, in a sense, against each other so that he can talk about them. So the parable continues. When he has found the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. What Jesus is trying to convey through this parable is that God rejoices more over the person who changes their ways, that one person who changes their ways, than the 99 people who live their entire lives doing what God asks of them, which when you really step back to think about it is really, really stunning. You would think that God would rejoice more over the person who really dedicates their lives to living the way God wants them to than to the one person who screws up all along and then finally gets their act together in the end. But that's not what this parable is saying. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Jesus is telling us that God cares more. God is focused more on the sinner than the person who's doing everything right. And this is exactly the message that's coming across in the parable of the lost coin. So in this parable, you have a woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one of them. The woman represents God. The coins represent us. And so she starts scouring her house to look for the coin. She finds it, and then she invites her neighbors over to celebrate with her now that she's found the coin. And this is how that parable ends. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
In essence, Jesus is sending a not-so-subtle message to the Pharisees in his midst. And he's saying, look, these people who you're judging, these people who you're looking at, and the people who you think aren't deserving of our time, these are the people who I'm here for. These are the people who I actually care about most. And I care about them more than the people who are doing all the right things. And the question is, why? Why is Jesus more focused on these particular people, the sinners and the tax collectors, rather than the people who are doing things right? And to answer this question, I think we have to examine a problem that has vexed humans for generations. So what is the most important factor in determining the path that we take in our lives? What is the most important factor in determining the outcome of our lives and the choices that we will make as adults? Or to put it in the context of what we've been talking about today, what's the most important factor in determining whether we are a sinner or a saint, a Pharisee or a tax collector? Now, if you examine the people who study this, like psychologists and sociologists, what they will tell you, generally speaking, across the board, is that the most important factor in determining the outcome of our lives are the environments in which we are raised. So if you are raised in a healthy, loving, nurturing environment, then you are likely to grow up to become a healthy, loving, nurturing adult. Likewise, if you are raised in a dysfunctional, toxic, and harsh environment, then you will likely grow up to become a dysfunctional, toxic, and harsh adult. Now, this is not true 100% of the time. There are examples of people who grow up in fantastic families. They have wonderful parents who give them everything that they need in life, and they turn out to be rotten human beings. I know you've met people like this before, and you sit there and you think to yourself, you were given everything. How could you turn out and be such a horrible person? Likewise, I'm sure you've met people who grew up in horrific circumstances, and they are remarkable people, and you think to yourself, how could you possibly have become the person who you are today, given that you had nothing going for you when you were younger? But those are the exceptions. That is not the rule when it comes to this. The rule is that we are shaped by our environment, or more precisely, we are reflections of our environments. So, How does a Pharisee become a Pharisee? How do you grow up to become a good person who cares a lot about your religion? That's what the Pharisees were. Well, likely that behavior was modeled for you at home. As a young boy growing up, you would have watched your father reading the Torah, studying it. And you would have also seen how if you learned it, you were praised for that. Your parents would have said, oh, this is really good. I'm glad that you're learning your Torah. And so you as a child, you would have developed a positive connection between studying the Torah, living a religious life, and positive outcomes. Now, let's turn the tables. How does a sinner become a sinner? How does a tax collector become a tax collector? Well, a tax collector, like a Pharisee, is something that you inherit from your parents. It's, it's a family job. So, as an example, if you have a father who's a tax collector, you will likely be able to become a tax collector because you will have the political connections to be able to get that job down the line. In fact, your father would probably teach you the ropes. He'd take you from house to house as he would collect taxes. And when you would astutely see and register that he was asking for more money than was owed, you would eventually ask him, why are you doing this? And he would tell you, well, that's just the cost of business. 
And because this is the environment in which you are raised, because this is what you know, you would never question the ethics of that. You would never sit there and you would never say to yourself, oh, this is wrong, because that's just the way you were taught. It was the way you were taught to be a tax collector. But let's take this one step further. How does a prostitute become a prostitute? So, generally speaking, prostitution for most women, not all, but for most women, is an option of last resort. It is the only way to put food on the table, so you end up selling your body to do so. Now, what does this tell you? It tells you that for most women who are in these circumstances, they have no resources. They don't have a husband to take care of them. They don't have a family that will take care of them. They are living in poverty. They're on their own. And so they learn from their environment, maybe even from their mother, that this is what you have to do to survive. And you have to do whatever you have to do to get by. So whether you're talking about the Pharisee, the tax collector, or the prostitute, we all walk down the road that has been laid before us. We all walk down the paths that have been determined by the circumstances into which we were born. And so, if you are a lost sheep of Israel, if you're one of these lost sheep that they're talking about, you were likely walking down that road long ago. You didn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm going to become a lost sheep. No, you were set down that path. You were raised in an environment that taught you how to make certain choices and to think certain ways. And so if that's the reason why you're a lost sheep, then just changing that is not going to be easy because you have to have a completely different perspective on your life. You have to unlearn a lot of things that you learn from your environment. And so the question is, what is the best way to change a person who's gone down a bad path? How do you help them to understand that they've made mistakes in their life? Is it by judging them and telling them that they're wrong? Is it by making them feel bad about the person who they are and the choices that they've made? No. The way you help somebody find a new path in life is by showing them love. And that's exactly what this parable is all about. The shepherd loves the lost sheep so much that he is unwilling to give up on it. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He's going to go into the wilderness and to seek after it until he can bring it back. Now, that's a remarkable thing. That's something that I think we all take for granted on a certain level. That when you go searching for one of these lost sheep, that would you be willing to do anything for it? Now, granted, there is no shepherd in their right mind who would actually do that. There's no shepherd in their right mind who would leave 99 sheep behind in order to go find the one. But the reality is, this is no ordinary shepherd. This is a shepherd who is driven by love and will do anything to get that lost sheep back. And so the point of this parable is to tell us that our God will never abandon us, that our God loves us unconditionally, and will literally do anything to make sure that we are back on the right path. So when Jesus comes across these Pharisees who are looking and judging these undesirables in the crowd, these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus understands that this wasn't necessarily the choice that they made to be in this position. He understands that they were brought to this point by their life circumstances. They were 
literally shaped by their environments. And if you want them to choose a different path, if you want them to go down a different road and make different choices, then you have to pursue them with love. And so this brings me back to how I want to end this morning, which is with this story of my peers that I grew up with when I was in Virginia. So after I left all of them behind and I moved away from Virginia, I did get some perspective on where I'd grown up. I finally realized that I had grown up in somewhat of a unique situation. So I started meeting people all over the country, all over the world, and they could drink normally. They could drink in moderation. They didn't have to drink until they were totally blasted and couldn't do anything or think or even speak. That was what I was used to. But I met these people and that changed my attitude towards alcohol. I realized, oh, not everybody's this way with alcohol. And so as my attitude shifted, so did my thinking about my peers who back home when I was growing up, I really thought of them as sinners. I thought of them as doing the wrong thing. But as I met all these other people, I realized, no, what had happened is that they are the product of their environments. Their environment taught them that drinking excessively was normal, and so that's what they did. And sadly, as a result, several of the people I grew up with, they developed pretty severe addiction issues. Now, I had a choice when I saw that, when I learned about that. I could judge them and say, ha, I told you so. Or I could show them love. And when I thought about my own behavior, I thought, no, Judging them isn't going to achieve anything. If I want to help these people, then I need to show them love. And so I reconnected with a few of my peers back home, the ones who I knew were struggling with addiction. And I didn't judge them for it. I just asked them, how are you doing? Are you, are you okay? And they would talk to me about what was happening in their lives. But at the end of our conversation, I would always say, was there anything I can do for you? And they would often say, would you pray for me? Now, they knew I was a pastor, so they asked for that. I said, sure, no problem. So I pray, and I call, and I pray, and I call. And I was just showing them love, no judgment. And not all of them, but a few of them, after a period of time, said, you know what? I really do need to change my life. I need to get things under control. And they got into a rehab facility, and they were able to get sober. And it changed their life forever. But they just needed a little bit of love. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because there are lost sheep around us everywhere. There are lost sheep in our lives wherever we go. And sometimes when we come across those lost sheep, our inclination can be to judge them. It's much easier to judge a person who's making mistakes than to engage with them. It's why we sit there and we say, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm just going to leave you behind. It's much, much harder for us to be there with them, to not judge them, to show them love. But I believe that is the better way to go. And I believe that's what these parables are teaching us to do. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you would have the courage of the shepherd to love the lost sheep so much that you would never give up on it because that is the way we create the kingdom and that is the way we create change in our lives and in the lives of others. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah Org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.